0: Thank you so much for joining us again. Back in 2019, when Democrat Andrew Yang wanted to be president, he tweeted this. Identity politics are a great way to lose elections. We need to bring people together. I believe we can get more done for different kinds of people by emphasizing what we share in common rather than what distinguishes us from each other. Now, fast forward to 2021, and Andrew Yang, who wants to be the next mayor of New York City, just said this. I feel a lot of responsibility to represent Asian Americans in New York City who feel like their place in New York, their place in America has been questioned. Now, what's funny is even CNN is now asking why Yang has made this abrupt U-turn and reports that his detractors think the sudden swerve into identity politics is just convenient political pandering and it might well be. But consider what's at stake for America if we continue to allow the false narrative of systemic racism to prevail without defending our nation's commitment to colorblindness and e pluribus unum and also confronting the real racial differences that do exist Exist So we're going to get some thoughts on all of it today from Dr. Charles Murray, Hayek Emeritus Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and the author of several books, co-author of The Bell Curve, and his latest is called Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America. Dr. Murray, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: I'm very appreciative of being asked.
0: Well, thank you. Many of us have been really appalled by the ascendancy of incapitulation to identity politics, especially as we've seen what's transpired over the past year. How do you see the acceptance of ideas like systemic racism amounting to an unwillingness to face reality?
2: I think it amounts to a repudiation of the American creed. Now, I use that phrase, the American creed, uh, thoroughly, you know, frequently in the book, and I know it went out of fashion about 50 years ago. <laughs> but it used to mean something very basic, and it still does. It referred to the ideals expressed first in the Declaration that in the United States you are treated as an individual. Yes. Uh, you are not judged by your parents or your religion or your race, color, or creed. Now, it's a hard ideal to live up to, uh, and... and Lord knows the United States has fallen short many times. But on the other hand, it really made a huge amount of progress. More than, No other nation even tried such an ideal for a long time, and nobody made as much progress as we did. Right. The thing is that identity politics doesn't just distract us from trying to maintain this ideal. Uh, it is in direct polar opposition to it identity politics. It's epitomized by critical race theory, but there are a lot of other versions of it. It says, in essence, not only may we treat people differently as groups, the state must use its power to treat people differently as groups, giving preference to those that are its friends and punishing those that are its enemies. That's what it comes down to. Yes. And. If if we go that route, we are in big trouble.
0: Well, one of the things you point out is at the heart of all of this is the idea that who we are as individuals is shaped by our race and our sex and that you're inescapably defined by being part of those groups. So how is that premise about groups as opposed to being individuals helping to destroy the American creed?
2: Well, once you believe that it's okay to treat people as groups, you stop treating them as individuals. Sure. And, Janetha, and see, right now, the scary part is the degree to which the mainstream media has bought into the systemic premise, mm-hmm. systemic racism premise. I, I wrote this book because of my horror last summer at seeing the accusations of uh, systemic racism parroted by the New York Times, Washington Post, by the major networks. And I'm saying to myself, have they bought into this? Is, this? is this what the elites in this country are now saying is the official American ideology? Mm-hmm. And then I said to myself, guess who's next in deciding that maybe identity politics is the way to go? And the answer to that question is white people.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Because you have what, what we're looking at now are a whole lot of people, white people who don't see themselves as racist. They have not behaved as racist. Uh, They have friends and colleagues at work that they respect and get along with just fine, and they believe deeply in treating people as individuals, and now all at once they are being told by leading figures in this country, white elites, not just black public intellectuals, that they are evil, saturated white privilege, that they are systemically oppressing people of color. (laughs) You know... You cannot insult people into agreeing with you, usually, and I think that you have a very quiet, so far quiet, but very ominous, uh, you know, sense out there of white people saying to themselves, oh, for heaven's sakes, I've had enough.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, that's right. I, I for one, have wondered why it is that structures can be considered racist because structures are not people. The people have to be the racists in order to create the structures, and yet they're asserting that the people are racists, absent any real proof. If you come forward and say, you know, give the evidence that you don't have any racism at all in your heart or life, that's not enough. Then they point to the structures. It's, it's completely nonsensical, and yet people, I think, are so scared to go up against it. But I think you're right. I think. More more and more people have just had enough of it.
2: Yeah, uh, and the thing is, uh, the, the, the movement is, has been led without question uh, by African-Americans. Latino-Americans, uh, you know, there's AOC and other, you know, very visible people, but they're really, they're really a minority. And, and Janet, may I say very explicitly, that I think, if you took uh, an honest poll of African Americans and Latino Americans and asked them what they thought of the ideal of colorblindness, of uh, being colorblind, I bet you get ninety plus percent who still embrace that ideal. Yeah, and yet, and yet, we are told by the the, uh, the advocates of critical race theory and of uh, systemic racism that colorblind is hate speech. It's Mm. racist. Mm. And uh, Americans don't believe that, but their voices are being drowned out.
0: Well, they are. And also people are wisening up, I think, to this idea that what this really is is a new form of racism. All of the gains that were made after the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed and there was a lot of, you know, going back and righting some of these wrongs. It seems we've lost all that progress because now you've got, you know, turning on its head the idea of racism. As long as it's lobbed against white people, then apparently it's okay.
2: Yes, for a long time, it's actually... You point out what the 1964 Civil Rights Act did, which was needed and right and good. It it, uh, banned discrimination by race. That was its initial intent, and said governments may not make laws that discriminate by race. And a year later, Lyndon Johnson says, well, it's not enough to have legal equality. We must measure progress by equal outcomes. And that was ridiculous. And I say it was ridiculous because we knew at that time that there were major discrepancies, major differences between the test scores of of blacks in in high school and of of white students in high school, and they were such that you could not expect there to be the same proportion of physicians in the black community as in the white community, yet there was going to have to be a long period in which the real measure of success was going to be, are we doing a good job of giving people a fair shake, no matter what their race, no matter what their sex, no matter uh, who they are, are we treating people as individuals and judging them by the same criteria? And if we had used that as our measure of success, we could have been celebrating progress for, <laughs> for decades mm-hmm. after that because we did make progress, but we threw it away in my view, with aggressive affirmative action that seemed reasonable when it started, you know, terrible wrongs have been done to blacks, but as time went on, it became obvious that we now had a new form of a preferred race and a race was told to go to the back of the line. Uh, Uh, it, It was a new form of racism.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and now we're hearing all this talk about equity from the Biden administration and seeing little cartoons from Kamala Harris on her Twitter feed about all of this. And it's very dangerous. And in fact, you take a look at two known truths that you say have to be acknowledged and incorporated into public policy doesn't have anything to do with racial superiority or inferiority. We're going to tackle that when we come back. Dr. Charles Murray with us. Facing Reality is his book. Stay with us. Did you know that over 18 million babies have been aborted worldwide since January 1st? Every single one of these babies died during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why isn't the world declaring these babies as lost? Here's Dan Steiner, the president of Preborn, a ministry dedicated to saving babies' lives from abortion through ultrasound. I sense God's broken heart over the issue of abortion. You see, he sees every little baby that's being formed in the mother's womb, and it breaks
2: his heart to see when the lifetime that he has plan for them is taken from them violently so often.
0: Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you help show that these babies' lives are not forgotten? Preborn is there for women in crisis who want to make the right choice but society tells them that a preborn baby is not a human life.
2: I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion.
0: Preborn shines light into a mother's womb, introduced her to the beautiful life growing inside of her. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. And that ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing The cost of one ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds cost $140. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I'm going to keep my baby, and I'm going to be a great mom. Every baby's life is important. Would you please join with Janet Meffer today and preborn in the cause for life? All gifts are tax deductible. And when you donate, you'll receive an ultrasound picture along with stories of other babies' lives that were spared. Call now 855 402 Baby, 855 402 2229, or there's a banner to click at janetmeffer.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, if you are tired of hearing about identity politics and critical race theory and intersectionality, you are not alone. And in fact, part of what needs to happen at this point is to really face some reality. The name of the book we're discussing, Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America by Dr. Charles Murray from the American Enterprise Institute. Dr. Murray, one of these truths that you address in the book is that according to the data, people from different races in the United States as groups, and that's important, as groups, have different means and distributions of cognitive ability. Now, what does that data show exactly, and how is that relevant to this debate over systemic racism?
2: Uh, The data consists of standardized tests, which have gotten a very bad name, you know, for, for all sorts of reasons, which they don't deserve. And they measure a thing called cognitive ability, which does not refer to virtue. It does not refer to human worth. It does not refer even to common sense. It refers to a kind of mental agility which is useful all the time, but it's especially demanded for certain kinds of jobs. And this is where it becomes relevant because uh, scores on these uh, tests predict to some degree job performance, whether it's in in an actual job or whether it's academically in the classroom. So that if you have a difference in those test scores you also have differences uh in job productivity and if then you combine that with affirmative action so that k-12 teachers to take one example uh, there's a 15 point difference between the mean of black teachers and the mean of white teachers Hmm. now i don't want your listeners to understand me too fast uh, we sent our kids to public schools and they had some wonderful black teachers. Uh, they also had wonderful white teachers. There were some incompetent white teachers. There were also incompetent black teachers. This is where you have, you, you judge teachers as individuals because they vary so much no matter what their race is. Right. But if you're talking about in a school system, who are going to be the teachers that are marginally qualified or incompetent? they will be disproportionately black if they are being hired with IQs that are 15 points lower than the mean of the whites. And the same thing applies to accountants and physicians and, and for that matter, electricians and, and other kinds of jobs. It becomes relevant socially uh, with, with large groups of, of people as opposed to the moral and practical imperative of judging people as individuals when we come across them.
0: Well, right, because I think you've said also in your book, when you're talking about the different races in the United States, you mentioned that Asians, for example, are higher than whites per se. You don't call them I whites, guess. but I mean, it, it, right. Yeah. But judging people by as individuals is very important because you can have plenty of people in any race who are way uh, more cognitive, cognitively agile than somebody in another race where the group might have uh, a different mean uh, means as far as, you know, where they stand against each other. But the individuals can vary quite a bit.
2: Uh, precisely, and and uh, well, let's face it, there are some white supremacists out there. I don't think they're very numerous, but they do exist. I got news for them: whites are not at the top of the list.
0: Yeah, if right. You're
2: to talk, if you're going to talk about <laughs> cognitive ability, East Asians are higher. A lot of South Asians are higher. Uh, so, get over it. If you think uh, if you want to talk. Of, that, that's one point. Another point is the, the idea that superiority and inferiority as human beings is measured by IQ is ridiculous. Of right. uh, The idea that God thinks that Joe is, is better than Bob because Joe has an IQ 12 points higher than Bob is laughable. <laughs> that's right. not how it works. Yes. That's not how human worth is measured, uh, and and we have to get over I never use the word superiority or inferiority with but, but this sort of thing because human beings are way too complicated to be judged by that.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, of course, the obvious question that arises, and you do talk about this in the book, is, well, what about, you know, you have minority children who go to terrible schools, inner-city schools, or they have other disadvantages that some people, you know, the whites in the suburbs don't have, and so how can you use standardized tests to determine whether or not people have higher or lower cognitive ability uh, as a race? Is there any validity to that assertion when you're looking at the data?
2: It's one of the most well-researched topics in psychology. I'm talking about hundreds of studies over 20, 30 years. The the verdict is unanimous. The tests are not biased against minorities. How do we know that? Uh, well, there are a variety of ways of testing it, but the most obvious is this. The, the purpose of the tests is to predict things like classroom performance and job performance. If the tests are biased against plaques, let's say, the score will underpredict their actual performance in the classroom. Hmm. It will underpredict their actual performance on the job. That's not the case. The scores, uh, the the the, the uh, scores from minorities, do not underpredict how they will do in those settings, and sometimes they overpredict them. In other words, if you want to think of it this way, in some respects, the tests seem to be biased in favor of minorities. Hmm. So the answer is no. Uh, I'll tell you what the tests are really good for with regard to the poor and the disadvantaged, you can take a kid who's gone to a miserable public school, uh, had a terrible home life, who is really talented, and there are lots of such kids. The test will give teachers information that they may very well have missed. Hmm. Because a a child like that may very well be quiet and subdued in the classroom, uh, not, not showing what he or she possesses, the test will reveal. it, And you can do a lot once you have that information.
0: Sure. Well, that's interesting. And of course, the other known truth that you point out in the book, and people need to read it, it's really fascinating, is the races as groups have different rates of violent crime. And we've heard a lot of these statistics over the last several years, of course. But what what is the most important thing to draw from those statistics?
2: I think it has to do with policing. I think the police have uh, taken a terribly unfair rap there the videos out there of police shooting unarmed men walking away from them things like that those are evidence of police criminality and they deserve to be punished uh, the full extent of the law but they are incredibly exceptional you know if you want to talk about uh, videos there are body cameras on thousands of police that are taking body camera videos every single day And if you could review all of those, you would be awed by the number of them which show restraint and respect and skill on the part of cops, oftentimes in the face of really aggressive provocations. But what people need to understand is this. A professional, well-trained police officer functioning in a low-income black neighborhood is in a much more dangerous environment than out in a white affluent suburb. And correct police behavior when you're operating in a very difficult, dangerous environment it requires things which involve the greater use of force, the greater use of backup, and a, and a variety of other stuff. Uh, the the with, If you don't recognize the degree to which uh, black communities, for whatever reasons, experience much higher rates of violent crime, you are not going to understand a lot of what... Uh, is being said about the police.
0: Yeah, you're right about that. And in cases, as you say in the book, where perpetrator and victim came from the same family or they were acquainted with one another, the race of the person arrested, even if that person was the wrong person, was likely to be the same as the race of the actual perpetrator, even if the police did make a mistake. So these kinds of facts are important for people to know about, Dr. Murray, because this is not stuff that's reported in the everyday news media cycle, for sure.
2: And and, and I think also it's very important to realize that this Drives me nuts when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes, Black Lives Matter. Yes, thousands of Black lives are being lost every year uh, to murder. But ninety percent of those murders of blacks are committed by other blacks.
0: Yeah, it's tragic. And
2: and uh, and so yes, by all means, let's let's try to uh, protect uh, African American, uh, innocent African Americans living in these communities. But the way to do that is not by defunding the police. The way to do that is by better policing and oftentimes more policing.
0: Yes, that's right. Well, when you say that you fear we might be reaching a point of no return on embracing the American creed, what do we do about that? How do we go back to celebrating equality under the law and colorblindness and returning to those values that were right in the first place?
2: Well, I wish I could give you a nice, clear, politically practical answer. I cannot... I'm very depressed about this yeah. it would be a start a good start if people started just simply saying out loud that they believe in the ideal of equal treatment of individuals under the law it would it would help a lot even if Biden didn't change a single policy if he would disassociate himself from the rhetoric of systemic racism and say, no, this is not a systemically racist country. And what we are still trying to do is get everybody a fair shake. Uh, I'm not saying this would be a panacea. I am saying it would provide cover for the great majority of American people who still believe in the ideal of, uh, of treating people as individuals under the law. And here I think that I'm on the right, I'm in the right politically. And I want to say to my fellow people on the right, there are an awful lot of people on the center-left who believe the same things you do about the ideals. I think that we are being distracted by the extremists at both ends, and that we in the center, whether it's center-right or center-left, we have more in common than I think we currently recognize. If this country is going to revert, to uh, a traditional expression of what we are trying to accomplish, I think it's going to be a coalition of center right and center left that does it.
0: Well, that would be wonderful. I, You know, we have to go back to this idea that we're a melting pot, that we're all Americans, that everybody matters, and we shouldn't be balkanized. And I know there are people who will politically profit from balkanization, but I, I think that's a really encouraging thing that you just said, Dr. Murray, because it's not just pure conservatives per se who believe that. I think you're right. There are people on the other side of the political aisle who agree with us, and if we would just speak up, that would make a very big difference. Great book, Facing Reality by Dr. Charles Murray just an honor Dr. Marie to talk with you. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you God bless. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, speaking of what is going on in the name of systemic racism, did you hear what is going on with the Biden administration asking Americans to betray friends and family who have different political views and report them to the government for allegedly being radicalized? This was originally via Breitbart, and also there's a great piece at AmericanGreatness.com about this. But during a teleconference with the press, they report a senior administration official said. Said they were seeking to improve public awareness of federal resources to address concerning or threatening behavior before violence occurs. The official said this involves creating contexts in which those who are family members or friends or coworkers know that there are pathways and avenues to raise concerns and seek help for those who they've perceived to be radicalizing and potentially radicalizing toward violence. Wow. In addition to seeking tips from American citizens to turn in their friends and loved ones, the official also said the government would be working with tech companies to increase surveillance on alleged radicals, alleged radicals. Now, you, you put this together with another Story here from the Washington Times, going back to what the Biden administration did just a few days ago, unveiling this aggressive plan for federal agencies to crack down on the threat of domestic terrorism and white supremacists. And and this leaves a lot of people going, What are you guys talking about? This kind of surfaced, didn't it, during the Obama administration where they started talking about, oh, all the white nationalists and the white domestic terrorists and the white extremists. That's the biggest problem we have in the United States. And if you recall, we had a problem with Islamic terrorist attacks during the Obama administration, and they didn't really care about those so much. I mean, they kind of acknowledged that they happened without mentioning the religion of the person. I mean, wasn't it just recently that President Biden acknowledged the uh, Orlando Nightclub shooting, which was done by a radical Muslim, and that was just left out of the whole thing. And and he was, you know, declaring it a, a federal, you know, historic site or whatever he did at the time. Uh, fine, I mean, acknowledge that the attack took place, but there was a lot of, a lot of whitewashing taking place under the Obama Biden administration. So now the biggest threat in America are white people, white terrorists, white supremacists, you name it. And we spent the entire time during the Trump administration trying to say, who are these people? I mean, was there some, some sudden surge in Klansmen initiation? Because if there was, it, it we, nobody knows about it. What are you talking about? Oh, okay, well, let's go back to the people who were there at the Capitol on January 6th. Well, funny you should mention that. Because there was a story that has just come out from Revolver News and you really need to take the time to read the whole thing it is quite extensive and quite detailed but the, this is just incredibly important stuff when you had Senator Amy Klobuchar talking to Christopher Ray you know Christopher Ray the FBI director the honorable Christopher Ray this democrat from Minnesota asked Ray if the federal government infiltrated any of the so-called militia groups that claimed to be responsible for planning and executing the Capitol siege. Now, Ray was able to weasel out of it, as Revolver points out, because she didn't really ask him the question directly. She asked if he wished he had infiltrated the militia organizations allegedly involved in the January 6th events, assuming from the outset that there was, no, in fact, no infiltration, thereby providing the FBI director an easy way to avoid addressing the question one way or another. Okay. This is what's important. Three points, as they point out. In the year leading up to January 6th and during January 6th itself, they say we need to find out to what extent were the three primary militia groups... That the Pentagon and the FBI and the DOJ have labeled most responsible for planning and executing a capital attack on January 6th. To what extent were the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters infiltrated by agencies of the federal government or informants of said agencies? It's the first question that needs to be answered. Secondly exactly how many federal undercover agents or confidential informants were present at the Capitol or in the Capitol during the infamous siege, and what roles did they play? Were they merely passive informants or were they active instigators? Thirdly, of all of the unindicted co-conspirators referenced in the charging documents of those indicted for crimes on January 6th, how many of those unindicted co-conspirators worked as confidential informants or as undercover operatives for the federal government. Now, interestingly enough, and I'm going to get into the nuts and bolts of this piece in just a second, but if you look at this letter that was just submitted by Representative Matt Gates to Christopher Ray, he's concerned about it as well. Because he says, as the events of January 6th have come to clearer relief, many questions remain unanswered. He referenced the June 8th Senate Homeland Security Committee and Senate Rules Committee putting out this 95-page report finding problems ranging from federal intelligence agencies failing to warn of a potential for violence due to a lack of planning and preparation by U.S. Capitol Police and law enforcement leadership. Uh, Just to make you understand what we're talking about here, they have tried to say A lot of these people on Capitol Hill, they have tried to say that what happened on January 6th was an intelligence failure. It was an intelligence failure. They didn't know anything about it. They should have been more suspicious of these white nationalists who went to Washington, D.C. to protest the election because they were trying to make their voices heard on the fact that Donald Trump likely won the election over Joe Biden and that this was just completely corrupt. And you ended up having some people go into the Capitol. We all know what happened from there. So they're trying to blame this all on intelligence failure. Now think about what we already know about a lot of what has gone on in the FBI over the last several years. The name James Comey, ring a bell to you. The Russia hoax, all of the nonsense and the lying and the corruption and the fake impeachments and everything that went on, I should say, the impeachments weren't fake. But the pretext for impeaching President Trump the first time around based on the Ukrainian hoax, was complete garbage. He never did a quid pro quo with the Ukrainian president, investigate Hunter Biden or else. That never happened. In fact, Joe Biden is the one who's on a video talking about how he did a quid pro quo. So you, you can go back to that whole scene and remember what happened there. But we already know about the whole deep state problem in the FBI and other agencies of the federal government. Going back to what happened with the Whitmer kidnapping plot, You remember that in Michigan with Governor Gretchen Whitmer and they busted these people who were alleged to have, you know, plans to kidnap the governor and maybe put her on a boat in the middle of Lake Michigan and all that. What they did in this article is they compared what went on with the kidnapping plot and the fact that there were a number of FBI either informants or agents, I don't know exactly what their designations were, but there were people in the FBI embedded within that group of people who eventually were indicted over the Whitmer kidnapping plot. Now, what's interesting about it is they had admitted to four FBI agents and/or informants being embedded, but they never that was it. Another guy, he outed himself. He outed himself. The FBI did not put out a press release and say, oh, also Joe Blow was involved. Joe Blow actually came out and admitted that he was involved. And they have the evidence for all of this. The individual from Wisconsin and his name was Steve Robison. And I guess he had been involved in undercover activities for some 35 years. He outed himself. It, 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 <laughs> he was referenced variously throughout the Michigan plot court documents as an individual He's a longtime government mole. And we know this, as they report, because in November, one month after the October indictment was filed, Steve Robinson blew his cover on a live stream and said, I'm the individual from Wisconsin. So we know there were five. So why does this matter? Well, for one reason, one reason that it matters is because it's a little hard to believe, a little bit hard to believe that you could have something like the Trump rally taking place in January, where you're talking about the potential of upheaval concerning election results and not have the FBI on the case. I mean, how likely does it seem to you that the FBI would have no advanced knowledge that people were going to come there to the rally when it was planned and that they wouldn't have some concerns about possible violence or possible vandalism or what have you? That's their job. I mean, and the Capitol Police as well. And we know that that whole thing was botched. It just is weird, and especially when you consider some of those videos that came out in which some of the people who are supposed to be protecting the Capitol are waving the people in and taking the barricades away. Does that seem strange to you? Is there more going on with this entire situation than the American people know about? That's what Representative Gates is trying to get to the bottom of, and it needs to happen. When we come back, I'm going to get into more detail so you understand Just how troubling this whole thing is Stay with us You're listening to Janet Meffer today Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. This is Janet Mefford. On a 100 degree day in Ethiopia, Africa, hundreds gathered for Sunday worship outdoors, and some walked an hour to be there. Afterward, 30 year old Cademan frantically copied scriptures from an old Bible to a piece of paper. Then his face turned sad as he closed the Bible and handed it back to its owner, one of only a few in that church of hundreds to have a Bible. You see, Cademan loves the Lord, leads his family, and is faithful at Sunday worship, but he's never read a single Verse in his own Bible because Bibles are very difficult to obtain where he lives.
1: Whoever comes our way and is able to give us a Bible,
0: it will be a great blessing. Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's Word to a new believer in Africa. $5 cents one Bible, $50 cents 10. Call 800 Yes Word. 800 Y E S W O R D. 800 Yes Word. Or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. Thank you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. If the federal government knew of a potential for violence in or around the Capitol on January 6th and failed to call for heightened security, the agencies responsible may in fact be legally liable for the damages incurred during that day. That's a report in part over at Revolver News. Uh, This is quite a stunning article. You really need to read it for yourself. It's very detailed and very long. But if you have any sort of distrust in your government... You're going to have more after you read this particular story. What is this all about? It's about the extent to which people are wondering whether or not the FBI had informants and or agents undercover who had infiltrated any of the groups present at the January 6th siege, if you want to call it that. And if here's why this matters, if they were there, if they were embedded Look at the Whitmer kidnapping plot. You had at least five people associated with the FBI embedded in that. Some of them were the leaders. They got into leadership roles with the Whitmer kidnapping plot and they broke it up. That's the purpose of being an informant or being an undercover agent. You're there to stop the bad guys from executing their plan, right? If you actually had people from the FBI, and this is what people like Matt Gates are trying to get to the bottom of, If you had FBI agents or informants who knew about this plot in advance, that's not intelligence failure because they let it proceed. What they're raising questions about is whether or not this was an entrapment scheme of sorts. If, in fact, the FBI did have advanced knowledge and had people undercover with the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters. Now, this is the question. Nobody is saying, oh, yeah, it's absolutely true. But there's a lot of smoking guns here a lot when you read through some of the salient points that come out of these particular charging documents and you see all the names of people who were involved in some cases just as involved as the people who were indicted and the person who was with them doing the same thing wasn't indicted and there was not time to give them any kind of um, clearance uh, beforehand where they could do a plea deal in other words Uh, the timing was such that they could not have copped a plea deal and then these people are just Not indicted, even though they were doing the exact same things as the people who were indicted? Why would that be? Why do you have all these people who aren't named and aren't indicted? They're unindicted co conspirators. Who are these people? Who are these people? Why would you indict some people and not others? So you go back to the Whitmer kidnapping plot and you see that the guy who was in charge of all of that, which occurred not too long before the election, that guy was promoted to guess where? investigating the January 6th siege. Oh, that's an interesting tidbit, isn't it? A very interesting tidbit. Let me go to one of the sections here that I think is very important because this is a recap of what Revolver News was reporting on. Uh, This uh, Stephen D'Antuono was named chief of the Detroit FBI office a year ago. He was promoted to head the Washington field office, a coveted post in the Bureau. FBI Director Christopher Wray made the announcement several days after uh, Dan Tuono's agents and state police busted up the plot to abduct Governor Gretchen Whitmer, his official new title, assistant director in charge. Hmm. He was one of the key figures overseeing the investigation now into the January 6th Capitol siege. What a coincidence. So here's the recap. Just months prior to the capital siege the FBI thwarted a similar plot involving a siege in the Michigan state capital whose plotters belonged to one of the three main militia groups associated with January 6th. The FBI was able to thwart this on the basis of an astonishing infiltration rate of said groups involving undercover operatives and informants who had been working in such capacity just in one tiny Michigan network for more than seven months. They were so well infiltrated that they already had three informants embedded in this random three percenter network before any plot was even hatched Hmm. furthermore just days after the plot was foiled FBI director Christopher Wray quietly promoted the FBI special agent in charge of the Michigan plot operation to a coveted DC field post where he now oversees the investigation into January 6th and the special agent in charge by the way is the one who establishes, extends, renews, and supervises all FBI undercover operations. Now, the above parallels between the Michigan plot and January 6th don't necessarily mean that the FBI had undercover informants and operatives who were involved in January 6th, but they say it reinforces our intuition that it's a distinct possibility. And it forces us to ask the question once again, if the government foiled the Michigan plot, why didn't they step in to stop the so-called siege? on January 6th. So now it's imperative for anyone who cares about the truth to demand that Christopher Ray answer the question, to what extent did the FBI or any other government agency infiltrate the key militia groups associated with the US Capitol siege? And more pressing still, a question to which we now turn our attention. How many of the unindicted co-conspirators in January 6 prosecutions, are unindicted on account of a prior arrangement with the federal government as an undercover operative or informant. That's quite an important question. This is what, again, we're trying to get to the bottom of. Matt Gates actually had this to say just recently over on Newsmax. This is cut one.
1: We paid for these cameras we own this building, the taxpayers of the United States. Is there any legitimate reason to not give immediate public access to all of these tapes? Absolutely not. And the FBI clearly doesn't have objections to selected releases of video and images from these days, but it begs the question, why is there not more transparency? What did the FBI know and when did they know it? That's one legitimate question, but as you point out in your introduction, The question of whether or not the FBI animated some of the criminal conduct is one that is far more grave. You talked about the Detroit situation with Governor Whitmer. The very same FBI personnel that orchestrated that operation end up in Washington, D.C. at the headquarters. And so it's reasonable to ask whether or not the FBI is engaged in a playbook where first they infiltrate an organization and then they try to bring that organization to the point of criminal conduct as a mechanism to try to bring it down. The FBI has a long history of this dating back to even the civil rights era. And I certainly hope that our premier law enforcement organization is not actually working to violate federal
0: law. It's... I wish I could say it was staggering, and in a way it is staggering. But given what they did under Trump, it's not staggering at all. These people, in my opinion, are capable of anything. They really are. They're capable of anything. How did James Comey stand before the American people and establish all of the email server problems of Hillary Clinton and outline all of the terrible things she did with classified information and then come to the conclusion after outlining all the reasons that she ought to be uh, held criminally responsible for what she did, end it by saying, we're not going to do anything about it because no reasonable prosecutor would take this case. All right, well, you can leave to your imagination why no reasonable prosecutor might take a Hillary Clinton case on, but be that as it may, it's not the job of the FBI director to give, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod to his political friends. But that's how it goes in the deep state, and we've seen what's transpired since then. Now, the reason I think that this is very important for us to know about is because if, in fact, the January 6th thing was... Uh, As Revolver News is asking whether or not it was a a mode of entrapment of these people who are Trump supporters, I mean, it's staggering. And I will say it's genuinely staggering to think about how evil that is. If you were there to bust up any potential violence, that's one thing. But if you were there to egg these people on to get them in trouble and you deliberately did not reveal the plot ahead of time in order to continue some kind of nefarious narrative about Trump supporters, Republicans, conservatives, Christians. That's a whole new level of evil. And I'm not saying it occurred. I'm just saying when you read through this story and all the details, it doesn't look very cut and dry to me that this was All Trump supporters just being over the top evil because we already know what the other side is capable of doing because of other situations that we've seen. It's interesting. And go back to what Attorney General Merrick Garland just said a few days ago, talking about domestic terrorists fighting for the superiority of the white race as being the greatest threat to the U.S. This is the U.S. Attorney General. This is cut two. the number
2: of open FBI domestic terrorism investigations this year has increased significantly. According to an unclassified summary of the March intelligence assessment, the two most lethal elements of the domestic violence extremist threat are racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists and militia violent extremists. In the FBI's view, the top domestic violent extremist threat comes from racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, specifically those who advocated for the superiority of the white race.
0: Baloney. Baloney. It's not true. I don't care if he says it's true. It's not true. But it would be a good pretext, wouldn't it, for continuing to malign white people without any real proof? It's terrifying. I mean, if it turns out, as Revolver says, that an extraordinary percentage of the members of these groups involved in planning and executing the Capitol siege were federal informants or undercover operatives, the implications would be amazing. I mean, this would be far worse than the already bad situation of the government knowing about the possibility of violence and doing nothing. It would imply that elements of the federal government were active instigators in the most egregious and spectacular aspects of January 6th, amounting to a monumental entrapment scheme used as a pretext to imprison otherwise harmless protesters at the Capitol and frame them. That's what we need to get to the bottom of. And I'm glad Matt Gates is pushing for it. And I hope every American, every American will push for it with their congressmen, with their senators. We the people run this country. We better start acting like it. God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you next time on Janet Meffert Today.